Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can be here today. And Lord, we ask as we come to your word that you would open our hearts so that we might hear what you have to say to us. And Father, I pray, cause us to be good stewards. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this is the uh, third week of our series, Living Beyond Ourselves. And the big idea has been this, God loves lost people. Do we? It's a very simple question, yet it's a very profound one. Um, We live in a world that is obsessed with the self and the goal of life is not to reach out to serve others, but it's to look after yourself. And we're journeying through a section of Luke's Gospel where we're profoundly challenged by the Lord Jesus and his love and the Father's love for lost people. And the question that comes is, do we? Uh, Will we care about lost people? And week one, um, we saw uh, a very key verse. Jesus said this, I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In other words, God is delirious with joy when lost people are found. Uh, We saw last week the summation of the great story of the prodigal son uh, or the elder brother, whichever way you'd like to see uh, that one called. My son, the father said, and he's talking to the elder brother, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. God loves lost people. That's the message you see in Luke's Gospel. It's the message you see in these chapters we're journeying through. And the key idea today is use your money for Gospel purposes in reaching lost people. Now, it's worth saying, if you're a visitor with us here today and it's your first Sunday, uh, you're going to get the money talk, if I could put it that way. Uh, Welcome to St Matthews. Aren't you glad you came? I don't talk on this every week. In fact, I talk on it roughly once or twice a year. Um, But it's a very important topic because as, as we're going to see, money and the way we use it tells us a lot about our life and particularly about our hearts and what we live for and what we trust in. And we come to this parable, and it's worth saying um, this is a very tricky, unusual parable. Now, in Luke chapter 15, there's been two groups of people on view. There's been lost people, serious sinners, and you see Jesus loving them and welcoming them, and he has them into his home for dinner. You also see the seriously righteous or religious people who really uh, just can't work out. Why is it this Jesus wants to hang out with these sinful people. In fact, if you read Psalm 1, the very first psalm or song that you get in the Psalms talks about how the godly person does not listen or hang out with the wicked people. And yet here is Jesus doing exactly that. And they can't make sense of it. And Jesus is saying it's because God rejoices when lost people like these serious sinners are found. And we come to chapter 16 and he turns now to his disciples. Now we're going to see the Pharisees, the seriously religious people, they're listening in. But he turns to his disciples, they're his trainees, um, they're the ones who are his apprentices. 
And he tells us this strange story about this dodgy steward. And some people have said they can't work out why he teaches this. Is he saying have corrupt business practices and let that be your model for how you go about life as Christian people? What's going on in this story? Well, let me help us understand by retelling the story. The first person we meet in the story is there's a manager. And this manager is rich. He's a guy who owned a lot. And he's got a steward. You might say in modern parlance, he's got an agent that works for him. Now, the steward or the agent is a person who had responsibilities. He isn't the owner, but he works for the owner. And his primary existence is on behalf of the owner to make decisions about the owner's property, which are intended to carry out the owner's values and priorities and dreams. So this steward is there working for the owner of the land. And he doesn't do it for nothing, he's paid. In fact, you could earn a good wage and a good living from being an agent or a steward of one of these wealthy landowners. And so he's got lots of responsibilities. And in those days, just as in these days, often properties were held by others rather than the person who is labouring owning. They just, in a sense, rent the land and labour on it. Now, my grandfather had a dairy farm up in Lismore, uh, Lismore and he had a share farm arrangement. There was a farmer who farmed the land and Pop would get money from the farmer. And the farmer would make a wage and make a living and they had a lovely life up there. But my father, grandfather was the one who actually owned it. And you see, it was the steward's job to work a deal with each of these farmers. You might call them share farmers. And they would work out together a deal about what would be paid for using the land owned by the wealthy landowner or the manager. And so there was a vineyard that needed to be worked. And so the agent or the steward would do a deal with someone who wanted to work the land and produce the grapes. And they would work out at the start of each year a contract and it would be written, and the farmer would be required to pay a certain amount of produce in return for being able to use the vineyard. And that was regardless of whether it was a good year or a bad year. The motivation was with, if I can say, the farmer to make it a good year and to work hard. And there was an agreement in writing, at the end of the year, you will produce this amount which will go to the owner. And if it was a good year, he'd make good money. If it was a bad year, he might even go backwards. But that's the way the economics worked with the Palestinian farming system. And it would be the same of a field. He may come to a man, this is the agent, the steward, who's good at farming and good at growing wheat and say, look, I'll allow you to use the field uh, to do a share farming deal. Um, we just need to work out up front how much you will pay in crops at the end of each year. And again, a deal would be done, a contract would be written. And so you can see the steward has this high responsibility because he's in position of great authority and he can make decisions about the owner's property. The owner has delegated authority to work out how he should run this land. Now it's fairly similar today at one level if you've got shares in a public company. I'm sure many people here have got shares in a public company. Um, let's say BHP, it's where I came from and BHP was the big company in Wollongong. It's now BHP Billiton. Uh, they split it off with uh, Blue Scope Steel. And BHP Billiton have a board and then they employ a CEO 
someone who probably earns more money than you'll ever see in your lifetime and he manages the business on your behalf. But you're a shareholder. You effectively are a part owner of the company and so every year uh, there's a day of accountability. It's called the annual day of reporting. And you'll see those, that companies have to give a public report to the share owners about how the company has gone and the chairman of the board and the CEO of the board will front the shareholders and they will give a report. And if the company's going well, it's a happy day. And if it's not going well, well, often you'll read about it in the newspaper because it hasn't been a happy day. And I read about one of those companies just this week. And you see, the CEO, he's not working for nothing, is he? Um, he's trying to maximise for, on behalf of the shareholders, the profits. Well, that's how it should work. It doesn't always work that way, as you know. And you've got this steward who has this similar role. But what happened was the steward began to forget who he's working for. He began to forget that there's a day of accountability when you've got to give account for the way you've performed in the business. And it's funny, when you forget about accountability and you've got a lot of leeway and a lot of responsibility, um, often things start to slip. Um, often expenses start to rise that become self-indulgent. Um, often responsibilities are overlooked. Uh, often rules can be bent and you kind of forget who you're working for. And I guess we've all seen scenarios where that takes place. And it can happen in any area of life. If there's no accountability, you begin to forget what the rules are and that you're responsible to someone for what you're doing. And this was a guy who forgot what the rules were and he began to look after himself. He began to pander himself and put his interests as the most important thing rather than the manager who he had to report to. So instead of flying just normal economy class, he's flying business and first class and he thinks, actually, no, I'm just going to hire a Learjet and I'm going to fly that way because that would be far more impressive and far more enjoyable. Um, when he has to take people out to lunch, it's not just at any lunch, it's the three-hatted restaurants in Jerusalem that he's taking them to and he's putting a big tip on the bill to pay the uh, wait staff and, you know, to look impressive in that world. And then he bills it to his boss. And you see, word got out. People started to wonder what is going on. The employees started to grumble. And so they contacted the owner. And they said, do you know about what your Harry's doing, about the trips he's going on, about the restaurants he's eating in, about the money he's spending and the opulence that is growing at Harry's place? Now, if you think this is a far-fetched story, uh, there was in the news this week a German Catholic bishop that was sacked by the Pope. I don't know if you heard the story. I'm not having a go at Catholics or Germans either way. Why he was sacked was he just completed his home and property renovations for $42 million. He even had a $20,000 custom-made bath that had matching custom-made pillows at either end. Why a Catholic bishop needs matching ones for two people in a bath? Anyway, that beggared belief for me. He's out of a job now. The new Pope has sacked him. I kid you not, he's been suspended and forced into early retirement. There was an 800 square gym for ecclesiastical fitness, apparently. Some, anyway, it just the list goes on. What had happened? He'd forgotten who he reported to and what he was responsible for. And so when the owner in Jesus' story found out his steward was doing this, who's meant to be responsible with what he owns, 
and that his steward has his snout in it up to the trough. He calls him in and he says, what's this I'm hearing about you? Now note in the story, the steward does not respond to the claim. He knows he's guilty. He starts talking to himself. And I think what played out was something like this. The boss says, uh, I want your credit cards, I want the keys, uh, I can get the Merc back, thank you very much. Uh, not that I authorised that, but I'll get it back anyway. I want the keys to the office. Uh, bring it all in tomorrow, because you won't be manager anymore. And the guy goes away and thinks, um, my goodness, this is not good. Um, I've been doing really well. This is my living. My wife, my kids, their private school education, it all depends on my job. Um, I sure don't want to go and work at Macca's with teenage kids. Um, I've never done a hard day's labour in my life. I don't think I'll get a job on a building site. What am I going to do? And suddenly he thought, I know what I'll do. Uh, I've got this window of opportunity. He said, come in in the morning. And I suspect the news of me getting sacked won't get out till tomorrow. So between now and perhaps tomorrow morning, if I get all of my boss's debtors in, uh, I can work out how I can make this work. I know what I'll do. I'll make a few phone calls and by tomorrow morning, I'll have friends that are going to last me a lifetime. And so he calls up the guy who's got the contract on the vineyard. And he says, come on in, I really need to see you. And the guy from the vineyard's a bit worried. Why is he being called in to see the steward? It's like kind of coming to the uh, boss's office. Is there some problem? And he's all very friendly when he comes in. He says, listen, I've been talking to the boss on your behalf. In fact, I said to the boss the other day, um, you're doing a great job here in the vineyard. Uh, excellent job. We really love you and we want to make sure that you're a long-term client of ours uh, and we wouldn't want to lose you. In fact, you're such a great guy. Um, we want to cut you a break. I've had a talk to the boss and look, this is what I've encouraged him to do. How much do you owe? Uh, he says, well, I owe um, 800 gallons of wine. He says, well, why don't we say we cut that in half? Is that all right? And the guy's just sitting there thinking, what on earth is going on? You want to cut my contract in half? Sure. Where do I sign? Get the pen and paper out now. I'm in. He said, that's good, I've tried half of you, I've got a great deal. Very happy to do it. And he walks out, a happy man, the vineyard owner, and then he gets the guy in who owns the wheat field. And he says, look, you are an excellent client, and I know you're going through some tough times at home. How about we just do a deal, and I'm going to reduce it. And uh, let's say, what do you owe? 1,000 bushels? Okay, let's make it 800. And this is what he does, and he gets all the farmers in, and he starts cutting deals for them. And you think, what on earth is Jesus talking about? Why is this parable in here of this dodgy steward? Because it's dodgy what he's doing. He said the manager came in the next morning. And this is what I think happened. He has a chuckle to himself and he finds out all that went on in between the time he sacked him and the guy handing the keys back. And him walking out the office door and all he could do was sit back and laugh. You see, the manager sits back and goes, I can't believe it. You see, there's not much he can do now. If he reversed the deal, well, it wouldn't be legal because technically the agent, the steward, was still the manager. And he had contracts rewritten and signed. He really was his steward in those last hours. All he could do was sit back and chuckle and say, well, you know what? There's a guy who knows how life works. Because he knew his time was running out and he used his window of opportunity before the sun had gone down and he found himself some friends for life. And let me tell you, that 
wheat owner and that oil owner and the other, they were very happy about the steward. And you might ask yourself the question, why didn't the master in Jesus' story simply blow the whistle on this dodgy steward and expose him and blow the whole deal out of the water? Well, the simple fact is this. Uh, The steward has not only made friends for himself, in that society, he's made friends for his master. You see, it's not just the steward's name that is being praised down at the local watering hole. It's his boss that they're loving. They're going, man, that landowner, we thought he was just some rich stooge, but he is so generous. Let's throw a party for him. We're rejoicing and we'll have him over because he is a great guy. And you see, it's not just the steward who looks good now in this community. It's the master. And his reputation was very significant. And everyone is praising him. You see, the steward is doubly shrewd because he's prepared for himself, friends, after the event, and sidelined any possible negative exposure. And Jesus says, this is one shrewd guy. Now, don't get hung up on the fact that he may have been a crook. And I think it's almost deliberate with Jesus that he tells the story about a crook. Because what you're seeing here is his love of people who are crooked. His love of people who are serious sinners. The tax collectors, they were crooks. And Jesus welcomed them. And I think to illustrate the point of his love and God's love for the lost, he deliberately tells this crooked story to challenge at a profound level the Pharisees who just snub their noses at him. And Jesus says, I think, I wish my people could get this figured out. You see, sometimes my people can be very godly, very pious, very prayerful, but they simply don't get it. They're not clever with money, not that he wants us to be dishonest. That's not the point of the story. What is there to get? Well, like in the parable, there is an owner and there is a manager. And God is the owner. There is no doubt about that. He owns the lot. He owns the world. He owns the creation. And he's a very great and generous owner. And he blesses this creation. Let me read to you from some of the Psalms. The Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He floods people with blessings psalm 104 he makes grass grow for cattle and plants for man to cultivate bringing forth food from the earth wine that gladdens the heart of man oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart friends uh, we have a god who blesses us that's the reality and he gives us this world as the owner to be stewards and to manage and to enjoy and we live in this incredibly rich blessed country And it's interesting because you keep hearing um, the debates about debt and overcoming that and uh, this sense of negativeness and woe is us in Australia. And I read a very interesting article in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, last month by Joseph Stiglitz. He's an American economist. And the title of the piece said it all. It was simply, Australia, you don't know how good you've got it. He said, as an American looking at our Australian economy, one of the things he said was, while other countries fell into the global recession... Australia maintains strong economic growth, low government debt and a triple credit A rating. And he went on to say most countries would envy our economy. Most countries would envy us. We are in this blessed world and blessed country. 
there is no doubt God, who is the owner of it all, has blessed us. And we live in a blessed country in so many ways, not just financially, but including financially. Now, it's not wrong to enjoy those blessings of life. God is a good God. And I take it he wants us to enjoy those blessings that he gives to us. I don't think poverty is part of God's plan. In fact, it is spoken against. We are to help the poor and alleviate poverty. And poverty is not a state of mind or a state of life to be desired. In fact, the Proverbs speak against it because when you are that poor, you are tempted to steal. Give me neither riches nor poverty, is what the Proverbs say. Riches I'll forget, God. Poverty I may steal. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son last week? The basic reason why we are not to resent the time, energy, effort and sacrifice spent on lost people is that without Christ, a lost person has nothing. No matter how much they think they have, you see, without Christ they have nothing. With Christ, we have everything. Now, the message today is slightly different. Um, We have everything, but with regard to the stuff we have, our wealth, our cars, our health, our houses, we actually own nothing. We own nothing. I know you've got bank accounts. I know you've got investments. I know you've got property. And you might have your name on the title deed or on the account register, but the reality is God is the owner and we just manage the estate. That property, that account, that investment actually is God's. That's the message of the Bible. He is the owner, we are the stewards. And the question is, how will we be a steward? Now, there was a guy who went into an airport. I'm just going to bring this over um, to illustrate this. And he had a bag of donuts. Now, I went and got some nice donuts from Krispy Kreme. They're the best kind, aren't they? Um, I know you shouldn't eat them, but I thought it's a helpful illustration. And you can go and buy them from uh, Krispy Kreme and uh, fatten yourself up and enjoy life. Just don't do it too much. Now, I've got 10 here. Uh, And that guy, he probably had about 10, and he had a bag of donuts. And anyway, he's sitting there waiting for his plane, and he looks down, and there's this bag of donuts that he can see, um, thinks it's his, and it's between him and the businessman next to him. And he goes down, and he puts his hand, and he grabs a donut. And then the guy looking to him looks at him and puts his hand down and he grabs the donut. And he's thinking, what on earth is this guy doing? And he's incensed. And this guy just looks up and smiles. <laughs> anyway, he's kind of trying to control himself. He doesn't know him, doesn't want to have a fight here. So uh, he reaches out to get another donut and the guy next to him, do you know what he does? He reaches out and gets another donut as well and smiles back. And then lo and behold, a third person comes and he takes a donut. And before he knows it, they're all finished. And he's just outraged. He's peeved. He's upset. All the donuts are gone. They're part of their ways. And as he got up to get on his plane, he felt in his bag and he noticed that the bag of donuts he bought were in his bag and they were not his donuts sitting next to him. That he'd eaten. you realise God owns all the donuts? God owns all the donuts. And when we're enjoying one, 
I won't have too many cats, don't worry. But I have got three more services to get through. <laughs> I've got some extras out the back. I know you're not meant to eat them, but they're nice. God owns all the donuts. They belong to him. And the funny thing is, he's like that guy who sat there and smiled as the other businessman ate his donuts. He blesses us. God is a good God. But he wants us to be good stewards with all that he's given us. Now, you think about ownership. When do you really own something? You know what, in God's scheme of things, you own it if you can take it to heaven. You don't own it if you leave it here after you've died. If you leave it here after you've died, what it means is all you are is a steward, not an owner. Because you can't take it with you. That's the reality. And everything that we think we own, we actually don't own. We just have it in trust to be stewards with. The only things we can take with us are our life, our soul, our relationship with Christ. And I think also our ministry done in Christ's name. That's what will last into eternity. The way you are involved in ministry and support ministry, the effects of that actually you own in the sense that you'll take that with you into eternity. It's profound, but the dollars, the property, the, the stuff, no, you've got to give that on to someone. That's why we write wills. And you see, the owner is God. There really is a steward. That's you and me. And the challenge of the parable is this. What are you doing with your master's goods? Are you being wise with what you've been given to look after, to steward? And you see, the people of this world, even the crooks, and there's lots of them out there, they know how to use their money to curry favour and make friends who are only going to last for this lifetime. And we need to be wise, Jesus said, and make friends with our money for eternity. Let me just put that verse up there, uh, verse 9. Jesus said, I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal being, uh, dwellings. And I think what he's saying is this. Um, you are to be a steward of your money and your stuff for the sake of the gospel and God's work. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. Yes, you can enjoy it, but you are to steward it and use it faithfully unto God. Now, what does it mean to be a good steward? Well, it's helpful because the Bible gives us a guideline. In the Old Testament, I've mentioned this every year, it talks about tithing. And so if there's 10 donuts, and there's 10 donuts up here, lovely Krispy Kreme, what God says is you tenth them. And you took one of the 10. And you wouldn't chomp into it yourself. You would give it back to God. And the tithe in the Old Testament, excuse me, was there to support the ongoing ministry to God's people. You tithe to the temple, so the ministry continued on. And then there were other sacrificial giving offerings that you made. And so you started with a tenth. If you got ten donuts, you gave one away. And the Old Testament spoke, when you get your cash in, your, your crops in, the first thing you do is you give back to God. You don't eat your nine and think, oh, okay, I've got one left, I can give that one now. 
No, you worked out what you had and you gave that first and then there'd be other offerings on top of that that you would give. So the tithe is the starting point. Now, it's worth saying, uh, we live in the New Testament and we are very blessed here. We live in the New Testament, which means our certainty of the things of God is exponentially greater. We know the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. And I think that's why when you get to the New Testament, the teaching on tithing disappears and it's replaced by generosity. And please don't tell me generosity equals less than tithing. Tithing is a starting point. It may be appropriate to give much more. I don't know if you've heard of Rick Warren. He's a famous minister from Southern California. He wrote a very, very, very successful book called The Purpose Driven Life. Many of you may have written it, read it. It became such a hit, he became a multi-millionaire off the back of his one book. And he had so much money, he decided to reverse tithe. He gives away nine donuts and keeps one. Because it's just money. And money don't bring happiness or security in life. But money can be used to further the gospel and make friends for eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. Get wise about what you do with your money. And be a good steward. Don't squander it on yourself like that crooked guy in the story who squandered it on himself, which is why he got in trouble. But rather be a good steward with it. And invest in gospel ministry for the stuff that will last for eternity. Now it's interesting, um, when you get to the New Testament, here's what Paul says. He says simply, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, to be willing to share. In this way they'll lay up for themselves a treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may not take so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. Now let me tell you what that doesn't mean. You can't buy your way into heaven. In other words, okay, I'm going to write a big fat check to the church and God's going to look kindly. No, it doesn't work like that. The only way you can access the throne of heaven is through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the cross is where we find acceptance with God and forgiveness for our sins. But because of the cross, our hearts are liberated. We rejoice knowing that we're God's children. As we hear the gospel and we respond to it, we want to support that work as it goes out from here, as it goes out elsewhere. And so what it does mean is that while you're a steward now, you use your stuff, your wealth, your goods, your money for gospel purposes. You see, there'll be people from Cambodia who will thank people from this church because you sponsored the work of Bible translation over there and theological education for pastors and Cambodians heard the gospel and they will come and say thank you St Matthews for that work there'll be people who you'll meet in heaven who came to Manor House and they found hope and dignity and they learnt about the Lord Jesus Christ at Soulmates and they come and just say thank you that you cared now, there'll be people who come from other nations who came here and learnt English, but they learnt far more. They learnt about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may never meet them, but they will leave here with more than English language. They're learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may meet them in heaven, and they will say thank you. There may be kids who, from the north coast of Australia and New South Wales, who you look at them and you go, you look kind of a little bit different. Yeah, they're surfing groms and they heard about Jesus because we supported Nick and V and Christian surfers up there on the north coast of New South Wales. 
there'll be indigenous people that uh, come from Black uh, from Broken Hill, and the indigenous church that we're supporting out there. You see, you invest money in ministry, in people, in the preaching of the gospel, so that when we depart this world, we can rejoice that we've made friends for eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. So where do you put your tithe is a question people ask me. Should I give my tithe to the church or spread it all around? Let me read to you what Pastor John Piper from America said. He said, there's no clear biblical mandate for your generosity, but it has to be a certain proportion to your church and to other ministries. But as a pastor, if someone came to me and said, I'd like to tithe, where should I give it? I'd say to them, well, I think it's a helpful rule of thumb to say that considering that this is your family of believers with its own set of needs and that you benefit from the church and you give your life to it, to start with a tithe here is a good idea and from there you can give here and from there you can give elsewhere. And I would encourage people to tithe here and then to give elsewhere. I don't want people just to give here, but I want us to be generous. And generosity starts at tithing and then we give over and above and we support other missionaries and missions and endeavours. It's a great thing to do. John said, I wouldn't say that you must give your tithes to this church. I can't find a verse in the Bible to um, put behind that. But when I think about what churches need in order to survive and flourish, I think they roughly need a tenth of what their people have and more. You can feel free to go beyond. And my practice and Kat's practice together, we've always given first locally because this is our family. And we're part of a family. And if you come here, you're part of a family. And I encourage people, give to the family so that the ministry can go on. Because I believe in the ministry that's happening here. I believe in our outreach ministry, to the school scripture we're doing, to the non-English speakers at ESL, to the marginalised in the soup kitchen, to the soulmates, to the young families in minimats, to the youth who come through the programs, to the passers-by who just wander in here on a Sunday and with open door. I believe in what we're doing to try and connect with this community and bring the gospel and love and hope of Christ. I believe in our Sunday ministry in terms of building the body of Christ up here so that every week you can come and worship the risen Christ with joy and hear his word spoken to you. I believe in our small group ministry that they are such excellent places to have deep fellowship and learning and grow in your faith as disciples. I believe in equipping people for ministry so that together we might be equipped to serve faithfully here and in the world. And I believe in each one of our mission partners that we support. And that's why I say I give here because I believe in it. And I encourage people who are coming here to do the same. And I encourage you, read the Treasurer's Report. Uh, look, there's been some very generous things happened in the last couple of months, which has been wonderful. We're still behind. But I encourage people, read that and take it to heed. If you belong here, I invite you, contribute here so that we can continue not just survive, but also flourish. I want to finish with Jesus' words at the end of this parable. Because he gives us a test, he talks about the tug of war and speaks about a testimony. Jesus said in verse 10, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little can also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Money is a test. It actually tests how faithful we are under God. And the amount is irrelevant. You see, it doesn't matter if you are earning a million dollars every year or a thousand dollars every year. 
It tests you as to whether you are faithful. And if you're earning a million dollars, it's a bigger test and it's a bigger exam because you can give more, but you actually can bless more through that means. The person who earns a thousand dollars, that's not nothing wrong with that. They can bless others in other ways. But you see, it tests really where is your heart? How do you know if someone is faithful? One of the ways will be with their checkbook. Secondly, it's a tug of war. Money is a battleground. Uh, no greater area of life is a challenge to us than money, I think. It's simply huge. And it's why at one level I don't like to preach on it. It's another reason why I must preach on it. Because it is so important. Now, do you know the main reason for giving this talk? It is not because of the budget. That is not the main reason to talk today on money. The main reason is our hearts. The main reason is to get our hearts continually aligned with God's word and to keep trusting him. And there is this tug of war that goes on. No servant can serve two masters. Either he hates the one and loves the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And the money monster will tug away. And as I've said in the past, I've got Scottish blood in my veins. I'm a Fraser. And money doesn't flow through my fingers, it sticks on my fingers. Okay? That's how I grew up. Single parent family, you don't have much, you hold on to it. And God says, actually, no, trust me and learn that I'm the one you can trust in and I'm the one who will bless you. You need to be generous. Which leads me to thirdly, the Pharisees and the testimony. You see, the Pharisees loved money and they heard all this and they sneered. And I suspect there were people here who felt very uncomfortable because you love money. Please don't be like the Pharisees, though. Money is a great illusion. When you die, it's all gone. Uh, money is a great illusion because it won't bring you the happiness that we think it will bring. Uh, money is a great illusion. There is no security with money. It won't save you from sickness or divorce or the pains of life or trouble. And it definitely won't save you from God's judgment. Money is there to test us. And it can be something that can become a great testimony in our life. Privately and quietly, we can rejoice in what God's given. And we can be generous with all he's got. And you know what? The great secret is this. When you learn to be generous, there's such joy as you start to partner with other people and sow into ministries and sow into church life. It brings joy. And the Pharisees, they mocked him. And he said, you're the ones that justify yourself in the eyes of God, but God knows your hearts. At the end of the day, if you're not giving and you name the name of Jesus, start giving. Start being generous. Start by tithing. Don't try and work up to it. Just start. Just do it. And these projects we've got, they're great projects to support. I want us to keep giving money away from here. That's why we're supporting the Aparid Muslim Ministry. That's why we're asking people for 50000 for our general missions giving so we can keep supporting our partners. But we've got other projects there. The, the solar panels is a great one we heard of this morning. And can I encourage you to give a tithe to the church. Support what's going on. But don't let that stop there. Give to other people. There's missionaries who we've got here in our midst. CPX is one of them. Great endeavour. Give to it as well. 
Lots of things you can give to. But be generous and liberate those checkbooks. That's what God wants us to do. Let's pray. Father, money is a tug of war. And Father, it's a test for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would liberate our hearts and minds and wallets so that we could just give and bless people. I pray you provide for our needs here, but not just for us, Lord. I pray for our mission partners. I pray for people serving in full-time ministry. I pray for ministries that are helping people in poverty and need relief. Lord, that you would help us to be generous with all these and that St Matthew's would be a great centre of generosity and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.